0: I had a dream about this place. To episode 41 of Ghost Stories for the End of the World, hope you're good. The Chicago Outfit partnered up with other Midwest families to run a number of extremely profitable casinos in Las Vegas from the 1940s all the way up to the 1980s. Uh, casinos make for brilliant money laundering fronts and they also provide a steady stream of legitimate profit and illicit skim money and that is cash that is removed from the casino before it's recorded in the books and the practice was so lucrative that the feds estimated the syndicate skimmed at least seven million dollars just from the rolls of quarters uh, coming into the status casino account room in 1975 alone that money was reinvested in legal and illegal business ventures, which, you know, created or further bolstered relationships between the great and good of the political and financial overworld and the spooks and gangsters and killers of the underworld. Las Vegas was considered um, an open city in the underworld. Uh, There was a kind of a tacit understanding that no single family was supposed to dominate Um, So instead, casinos and hotels and restaurants were bought by consortiums of of different families and gangs who all own shares in the same front companies. And this meant that they had to bring in a lot of, um, quote unquote, legitimate, you know, business contacts as well to make everything appear as if it was on the up and up. You know, people like Alan Glick, the idea was to minimize the violence and the police attention that this and just focus on quietly skimming profits and networking and laundering money from you know their other illegal businesses that they ran outside the city but this idea of an open city it, it didn't quite work out in practice you know uh, since the outfit and the Kansas City mafia were such powerful influences on the strip but it was still a, a relatively stable operation for a very long time and the syndicate, you know, grease the wheels with, you know, well-placed bribes and and kickbacks and any killings usually happen far away from the Strip, out in the desert. For an example of how mind-bogglingly complex the, the business networks that spring up around casinos can become, consider this from Jonathan Marshall's Wall Street, the Super Mob, and the CIA article in Lobster. Quote, The Albert Parvin Foundation, for example, was founded by casino decorator and owner Albert Parvin from his sale of the Flamingo Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas in 1960 to a syndicate front-in for Mayolansky and other notorious gangsters. And uh, this is me speaking now. Remember that the Flamingo was a mob casino from the outset. In fact, it was Bugsy Siegel's baby, as we uh, covered back in, I think it was the third American tabloid episode. Anyway... Goes on to say, Parvin's foundation funded CIA agent Sasha Volman in the Dominican Republic in the turbulent years of the early 1960s, immediately following the collapse of the Trujillo dictatorship. Volman, a social democrat from Romania, had worked for a CIA-backed union in France in the 1940s and then for the CIA's Radio Free Europe. Uh, it continues in the 30s and 40s Conrad Hilton bought hotels in San Francisco and Los Angeles with an investment agent for the Chicago outfit at the end of World War II following up on his success in landing the Plaza in New York Hilton purchased the Stevens and Palmer House hotels in Chicago two of the windy city's biggest and most prestigious properties advising Hilton and investing in the latter deal was Chicago business mogul Henry Crown, who became the third largest shareholder of Hilton Hotels after Atlas Corp. In 1961, to raise cash to cover losses elsewhere in his portfolio, Crown sold the Empire State Building Corporation for an after-tax profit of $32 million. The buyer was a general partnership organized by the renowned New York real estate investor Lawrence A. Wien. Wien. was also a trusted advisor to members of the old Cleveland crime syndicate led by Mo Dalitz. More about him in a bit. Uh, In 1959, Desert Inn Associates, another wind syndication, purchased the Desert Inn in Las Vegas for $10 million and leased it back to its original owners until the year 2022. The Desert Inn boys were so happy with the tax saving manoeuvre that they donated $50,000 to Wien's Tax Exempts Foundation. Not only did the structured deal reduce their legal tax obligations, it allowed them to keep control of the casino so they could continue cheating the IRS by skimming unreported cash profits. At the Desert Inn... Writes Sally Denton and Roger Morris, ostensibly owned by Lawrence Wien's upstanding Manhattan investors, and expanded with a teamster loan. FBI microphones recorded an often shifting twelve-way split in 1961 and 1962. The skim was divvied up between Dalitz, Sam Giancana, Brooklyn's Joe Bonanno, Johnny Roselli, Maillandsky, and others. So I'm sorry to hit you there with you know <laughs> a dozen names. Uh, and half a dozen different business deals in the opening segment, but it's best, I feel, to establish early on, up front, that this is not going to be a a simple story. See, the 1970s represent the peak of, of mafia power in the United States, and it really was almost bigger than U.S. steel at this point. And if our American tabloid series was a study in how the mafia assimilated into an American capitalist system that, you know, turned out really wasn't all that different um, from the machine politics back in Italy or the the rackets in turn-of-the-century New York. Then the way that the syndicate almost entirely fell apart in the late 70s and the early 80s is a study in how much bigger historical forces finally uh, buried a certain way of doing business. So, you know, as, as is clear, casinos made for great networking venues. You know, every time the syndicate opened a new resort, either in Vegas or the Bahamas or Cuba or wherever, the guest list would always read like a who's who of movie stars, business royalty and, you know, political dignitaries. Casinos were and remain an integral part of the business of organized crime, although, you know, the American mobs control of Vegas and the extent of its political influence is nowhere near as far-reaching as it once was. So what this series offers us is an opportunity to construct a sort of Mark Lombardi-type network map, Um but a network map of the mind, friends. Um, Normally, you know, I'm a tad wary of, of yarn and cardboard type stuff, but this story really does merit it because there's so much to try and keep straight in your head. So although we'll be starting off with a look at the story behind the book and film, Casino, once we start chasing the money and the bodies, we're going to be leaving Las Vegas pretty quickly and we'll be following Uh, lines of intrigue that open up to something much bigger and more sprawling and this is not to say that what the outfit got up to in las vegas in the 1970s is directly connected to like the savings and loan crisis of the 80s or castle bank and trust or nugenhand or iran contra but by looking at the chains of intermediaries you know those people who indirectly connect one thing to another or, you know, crisscross, if you prefer. By doing that, we can think about how money and power circulates at this level. Um, Over the next, I think it'll be about three or four episodes, this one. So I suppose you could say we're using the concept of a casino as a metaphor here. Uh, We'll be looking at a number of guys who all bet big on the deep state roulette wheel and some of them wound up buried alive in Midwest cornfields Some of them became the president of the United States So join me as I attempt a dizzying feat of high-concept thematic storytelling Because this is a story about frontmen and shakedown eyes Spook assets and underworld fixers But it's also about mob lawyers, UFO-obsessed senators drugged-up showgirls, Kirkhead bankers, Ivy League old boys, and, and, you know, obviously CIA contract killers. These guys are the glue that, that binds the major sort of players and uh, historical and economic forces together. So we'll be following connections. We'll be trying to pass out who knew who and how. And the aim is to get from the casino count rooms of Las Vegas and, to some extent, Atlantic City, to the White House in just a few episodes by patiently collecting names, listing businesses, and using informed speculation. This is one of our controlled swan dives off the deep end. And we'll also be looking at how the CIA finally outgrew using street guys from the syndicate and switched up its methods. And in a couple of hours, we'll be far away from casinos entirely and we'll be discussing... uh, you know, the bread and butter of this show. Bank fraud, the arms trade, drug trafficking. And eventually, we'll be in the black marble halls of Carcosa. And we'll be peering out from behind a column as none other than George Poppy Bush ascends to the throne in the Great Hall after saving the CIA from itself. That's a ways off, yet, though. Uh, this episode was starting relatively small. And we're talking about Lefty Rosenthal, Tony Spalatro, how they lost Paradise, and most importantly, where the money to build Paradise came from and where it went. So in 1969, a guy called Alan R. Glick was honorably discharged from the U.S. Army. He was 27 years old, and he'd been um, admitted to both the California and the Pennsylvania bars prior to to enlist in. He served first as a lieutenant uh, in the military police, then he transferred to special ops in Vietnam as a translator. And in very little time, he was a captain. Uh, He joined in 1967 too, so there's a very good chance that Glick worked at least adjacently to the Phoenix program. And I think it probably does bear a little bit of thought about why a special ops Army veteran from Vietnam found himself the frontman of a uh, a syndicate bid to buy out some Las Vegas casinos. So he was awarded the Bronze Star, um, three Combat Air Medals, and the Vietnamese Medal of Honor as well. And after his time in the service, he moved to San Diego and he became a member of the Housing Guild and worked for the Saratoga Land Development Company. So he's a lawyer. He's an ex-Special Forces guy, and now he's a real estate developer. So it's, it's, I don't know, is that a series of downward steps? I'm not sure, but it it chills me to my core. So in 1972, he obtained a casino license in Nevada, and he took out a loan from SLDC for $2.3 million, and he bought a controlling stake in the Hacienda Hotel and Casino. Now, this part of his biography always strikes me as a little bit too neat because in his account this was where he just happened to remember that he'd gone to college with a guy called joe balistrieri now joe's dad frank just so happened to be the boss of the milwaukee mafia and glick wanted to buy the stardust casino and again in his telling he was a complete babe in the woods and he had no idea how deeply entrenched the syndicate was in Vegas, which I'm sorry, but, you know, any average person in the street (laughs) could have told you how deeply entrenched they were at that time. So the mob's control of Las Vegas casinos is quite a tangled and complex issue, and we'll keep bumping up against this complexity as we go along. Um, They had, of course, they'd virtually built Las Vegas, and although Glick would buy the Stardust, 1974 and find himself partnering with mafia bosses to pull off the deal. The syndicate had directly and indirectly controlled it for years by that point. And for another example of how uh, much complexity and murkiness could surround just one casino in Vegas, consider this from um, Pete Bruton quote when the Caesars Palace Casino in Las Vegas opened its doors in 1966, the biggest stockholder was Jay Sarno, who was identified in federal reports as a frontman for the Chicago mob. Not surprisingly, Jimmy Hoffa arranged a $10.5 million Teamsters loan for Caesars. Convicted mob bookie Jerry Zarowitz was brought in to run the casino, while the host was Elliot Paul Price, identified in Senate hearings as an associate of New England mafia boss Ray Patriach. In the Boardwalk Jungle, Ovid DeMaris states that, quote within a quote, the FBI and the IRS were convinced that Zarowitz and Price had been planted in Las Vegas to protect the hidden interests of the real owners of Caesar's Palace. Evidence would show that the hidden owners included Tony Accardo and Sam Giancana of the Chicago Mafia, Ray Patriarca, Joseph Anselmo, Jerry Aguilo and Joseph Palermo of the New England family, Jerry Katana, Vincent Alo, Tony Salerno, and Jimmy Napoli of the Genovese family. Together, they skimmed millions from the casino. So, back to Alan Glick. Now his version of how the Stardust deal was set up is extremely long and complex, and you know, neatly absolves him of um, any culpability for what happened later. In fact, his story is so long and complex, that it feels designed to mystify and obscure what was really going on. It's it's the true account of a lawyer and a special forces uh, veteran, special ops veteran even. So, in a nutshell, he set up a company called the Argent Corporation. Argent is a word that Glick created by combining his initials, A-R-G, with the word enterprise. And it also just happens to be French for money. He was a very... Clever guy was Alan R. Glick, and the Teamsters Union owned a controlling interest in the Recreon Corporation, which in turn owned the Stardust. And for the sake of ease throughout this episode, whenever I mention the Teamsters, think mob. Uh, in Vegas, especially, the Teamsters were just another syndicate front. So after shopping around for finance, Glick eventually settled on asking the Teamsters for a loan to buy the Stardust. And the Teamsters were willing to sell their stake in Recreon. And they would also persuade enough shareholders to go along with the deal that Glick, through Argent, would end up with an 80% controlling interest in the company and therefore control of the Stardust, at least theoretically he would have control. Now Frank Balistrieri offered to vouch for Glick with the Teamsters Pension Fund trustees and the union's executive committee, who had final say on all lands. Um, He'd have to clear it with Alan Dorfman in particular, who was one of Hoffer's closer associates, and he was also in charge of the Teamsters Pension Funds. So Glick had a clean background, a stellar business history, and an outstanding record in the army. Uh, So he was unlikely to be rejected for either a gaming license or for the application he was making to the Teamsters. He's always claimed that he only found out after the wheels had been set in motion that the syndicate had been involved in his deal from day one. But Balistrieri offering to vouch for Glake should have tipped him off that this was not going to be a a normal run run of the mill. Business transaction. Basically, Balistrieri expected something in return for offering to vouch for him, you know. So Balistrieri imposed some conditions on his offer to Glick. First, Glick had to find jobs at the casino for Frank's two sons. Um, And when he couldn't do that, Glick wound up taking them on as his lawyers and he paid them each about 30 grand a year for advice. Second, if Glick ever decided to sell the Stardust, Balistrieri would be allowed to buy a controlling interest in Argent for $50,000, which is insane, you know. Third, Glick wasn't to discuss the Teamsters loan with anyone except Balistrieri or his two sons. And fourth, Glick had to hire a friend of Balistrieri's and give him a promotion and an immediate Terrorize. now this friend was a man called Frank Lefty Rosenthal and he'd already been working at the stardust for a couple of years at this point first he worked as a floor manager then he worked as a public relations officer then as a food and beverage supervisor Glick didn't think this was strange that he kept going from one job to another and he was amenable to the suggestion The syndicate used their influence with the Teamsters Union to get a loan for $62 million approved uh, for Argent, Um, and this was overseen by Alan Dorfman. Glick then used the money to buy the Recreon Corporation, which owned the Stardust and the Fremont uh, in 1974, Fremont being another hotel casino. By the time all of this was over the Outfit and the other families would have funneled $146 million in Teamsters cash into just these four casinos. You know, paid them, uh, paid themselves healthy commissions and finders fees and God knows what else out of this money. This method of of using the Teamsters pension fund basically as a private bank is something that we'll also find cropping up uh, throughout the story. So while Glick Liked to think of himself, you know, as like a, a dynamic go-getter and a savvy businessman. He really was just supposed to be a clean name on the paperwork. The Midwest bosses were content to kind of let him play the big shot as long as he didn't interfere with the skim operation and he deferred to them on personnel issues, on hiring issues. So let's talk about lefty Rosenthal. Um this is Ace Rothstein in the film Casino, and Lefty, he really was a hell of a handicapper. Um, he'd been born into a pretty comfortable upper middle class suburban Jewish home in Chicago, and his dad had run a fairly successful food wholesaler. Uh, and it's through his ownership of a couple of race horses that Lefty became interested in gambling and, and odds making. And by nineteen, he was known across uh, Illinois, and the. the broader Midwest as a prodigy, you know, basically someone who could reliably pick winners. And in the mid 50s, he was working very closely with the outfit and he was running the single largest bookmaking operation in the US. And when Lefty couldn't figure the odds, you know, just using his brain and his own skills, he and the outfit would straight up fix uh, football matches, basketball matches, you name it. In 1963, he was convicted for paying a New York University uh, basketball player to throw a game. And this would actually turn out to be his only major conviction. So, how good was he at what he did? Well, during the 1961 football season, through a combination of you know canny analysis and, and straight-up bribery, he turned a $15,000 bankroll that he got from the outfit into $750,000. Now, bear in mind that there were street guys who were knocking over banks and they were moving heroin in bulk who rarely came close to that amount of money, and lefty always made sure to... Pass along good tips, you know, to the top cappers and bosses, and kick back a percentage to them as like an additional gesture of respect, you know. Lefty then moved to Miami, spent most of the nineteen sixties there, in fact, and this was because the police had started looking into his operation in earnest uh, back in the Midwest. So he's portrayed as relatively meek uh, in the film Casino, you know, more of a frustrated businessman who wants to go straight than an outright crook. But <clears throat> the reality is slightly more complex. His, his time in Florida was marked by his close friendship to two of the outfit's top guys. This is Fiore uh, Buccieri, who was a loan shark and hitman, and Jackie Seron, who briefly became the boss of the outfit after uh, Sam Giancarna had fled to Mexico. Lefty displayed a willingness keen willingness to call in violent favors from the outfit when he was in Florida. The cops, in fact, suspected that he was behind a string of car bombings and and beatings and uh, robberies against, you know, business rivals. And he also had repeated run-ins with the coppers who enjoyed harassing lower-level bookmakers who hadn't paid off the right precinct chief or, you know, done the right favors for the right people. Uh, In 1962 alone, in fact, Lefty was arrested nearly a dozen times for a bunch of minor violations. So we're talking like unpaid parking tickets, swearing in public, loitering, that kind of thing. And the FBI had also started to look into him. Uh, In fact, his house was bugged for a full year. Then eventually, uh, the Florida State Racing Commission revoked his license to own racehorses and they banned him from stepping foot in any of their racetracks and this led to lefty petitioning the commission to give him a hearing very publicly petitioning them as well and that brought a lot of um, media attention his way and this habit of his of launching these personal crusades that would bring him a lot of trouble in the years ahead but the outfit liked rosenthal because he made them a lot of money and he knew how to keep his mouth shut as well in fact when he appeared before the mcclellan committee on gambling and organized crime He invoked his Fifth Amendment rights 37 times. Uh, In fact, you can read transcripts of his appearance and it is an absolute farce. It's very funny. Um, Miami had become too hot for lefty to operate in there. And Chicago was a virtual no-go zone now that he was on the FBI shit list. But Las Vegas was the ideal solution. Uh, He could stop looking over his shoulder there and he could, you know, set up his own betting office. He met Jerry McGee in Vegas around 1968 and that's the Sharon Stone character in the film. Uh, Jerry was a former beauty queen uh, and dancer and she was well known in Vegas as a, a very savvy hustler who, you know, could take care of her friends. In fact, she was pulling in, I believe, about half a million dollars a year just from hustling chips and escorting high rollers around the strip. But when she was on the north side of 30, um, she began to look for a bit more stability, you know? And Lefty more or less bought her companionship uh, with, you know, expensive jewelry and money. Uh, He was, by all accounts, madly in love with her, although he knew she didn't really feel the same about him. Um, But he understood, you know, that she was looking for someone reliable um, and he hoped that eventually he could just wear her down, you know, and change her that way. So Jerry already had a daughter from a previous marriage uh, with her ex, Lenny Mama, and that's the James Woods character in the film. Um, The real guy was charged with pimping on one occasion, uh, but it was dismissed. He mostly seems to have been a kind of leech who just fed Jerry sob stories that usually ended with a request for money. So Lefty would eventually have... Two kids were Jerry, uh, Stephen and Stephanie. By 71, as he tells the story, he was working 18-hour days and Jerry was demanding that you know he spend more time at home. So according to him, he filled out an application form and he got a job as a floor manager at the Stardust and he learned the ropes of the business from the ground up, as he tells it. And he you know, made a name for himself by cracking down hard on cheats and crooked stuff and focused on bringing more high rollers into the casino. Lefty's version of of how he started working at the Stardust is most likely bullshit. In fact, most of the staff at the Stardust knew who he was connected to, and they never bought this cover story about a midlife change of career. George Hartman, who was a blackjack dealer when Lefty started working there, he said, quote, Lefty never really worked like a regular starting dealer. He knew all the top bosses in the place, but he came in as a floorman. Within a week, all kinds of people are treating him like he's a boss, even though his job title didn't justify it. The word got around. We always knew that Chicago ran the Stardust. Alan Sachs, who'd owned the place at one time, was from Chicago. Bobby Stella, the casino manager, and Gene Cimorelli, the shift boss, they were both from Chicago as well. So were dozens of pit bosses, floor men, and dealers. The fact that Lefty was a Chicago guy made it even plainer that he was connected, but who was going to ask? Sachs, incidentally, had also been a co-owner of a couple of other casinos uh, with Mo Dalitz, who we mentioned earlier. We will be talking about him soon. The CIA then um, has assets and the syndicate has beards, you know, and in both cases these refer to reliable people who can perform key functions for each organisation and they can compartmentalise and they can move freely between the underworld and the upper world and Alan Glick for a time was a perfect beard, and Lefty was ideally placed to run the operation behind Glick's back. So although Lefty was brought in as a floor manager, he wound up secretly running the Hacienda, the Stardust, the Fremont, and the Marina, and he'd spend his time in Las Vegas micromanaging the day-to-day operations and changing his job title every so often to, you know, try and escape scrutiny. He wasn't very successful in that. And this is from Hartman um, again. Quote, The problem with lots of casinos back then was that no one ever really knew who owned them. The ownership was so tangled and went back so many years with so many silent partners and half partners and fronts and point holders that nobody from the outside could ever figure it out. And lots of people inside never figured it out either. So as Lefty's profile rose the Nevada Gaming Control Board started to take a closer look at just what his role was at the casinos. In fact, he'd been at the Stardust only four months when they started looking into his background. Alan Sachs, who'd been the president of the Stardust, he'd seemed to be one of the few people who could sense the trouble uh, that this was going to cause, and he started to make noises about having Lefty fired. This is before Alan Glick bought the place. And then Sachs was visited in person by a top boss in the outfit. And this was most likely Joe Ayupa um, because he had a soft spot for Lefty. And Sachs was told, you know, in no uncertain terms, Lefty was to remain at the casino for as long as Chicago wanted him there. So Lefty did actually bring a number of, of innovations to these casinos and they would end up being duplicated and become standard in other places on the Strip. Uh, as the years went on. Uh, he was the first to start using female blackjack dealers, and he doubled the revenue at those tables. He also installed uh, sports book areas on the casino floor, and this is where punters, you know, you could grab a drink, and you could bet in real time on basketball games, horse races, you name it. In fact, his attention to detail was exacting, and his standards were, you know, incredibly high. There's the famous story about how uh, he expected every muffin in the status to have exactly 10 blueberries in them. And in no time at all, he doubled the revenue of all four casinos. And he began to build up a list of contacts in Nevada politics and law enforcement who, you know, would come to owe him or the outfit favours. And when I say that uh, Lefty was building a list of powerful contacts, I'm, I'm really not joking. Um, if you've seen the film Casino, You'll remember the sequence where a whale called Ichikawa wins big at Blackjack and Ace has to scramble to get him back into the casino so that he can, you know, lose it all back to the house. Although this was a nod towards a, a Tokyo real estate developer called Akio Kashiwagi. Lefty never actually met this guy. Kashiwagi was most active in the late 80s and he preferred to do most of his gambling in Atlantic City at Donald Trump's Plaza Hotel, funnily enough. It is possible that Scorsese was riffing on Kashiwagi's reputation because he'd been murdered a few years prior to filming, so, you know, he wouldn't be able to sue them or anything. However, the Stardust did frequently host none other than Adnan Khashoggi, who was the arms trafficker, deep state operative, and key player in Iran-Contra, and the Arms for Hostages uh, controversy. He was also a middleman in the sale of the Stolen Promise software, and he's widely considered to have been Jeffrey Epstein's mentor. In fact, he was so tight with Lefty and the real owners of the Stardust that he was given a million dollars in credit. Uh, Senator Harry Reid is also alleged to have been a frequent guest at the Stardust. Uh, He enjoyed various perks, allegedly, and uh, fully comp stays in the, the luxury suites allegedly. In fact, Reed would go on to clash with Lefty in later years, and he once said that Rosenthal and his backers uh, truly, truly scared him. And this is by the by, but uh, Reed also developed a fascination with UFOs, and he eventually helped set up the disclosure movement, and that led to, you know, the US government releasing those videos and issuing that report about uh, UAPs last summer. We did an episode about that, you should check it out. Lefty also clashed with Alan Glick uh, on multiple occasions as well. Uh, When Glick first bought the Stardust in 1974, he seems to have genuinely been under the impression that he was there to do more than sign the paperwork and, you know, collect his monthly stipend. And it would take a while for him to realise that was not why he was there. In fact, as Glick tells it, quote... Frank was supposed to clear everything with me, but he didn't. And at the outset, when I questioned him about these things, he wasn't disrespectful. But every day I would hear that he had taken a little more power. I heard that when he walked through the casino, dealers used to jump to attention. He would fire a dealer for not standing with his hands folded before him, even at an empty table. He hired whoever he wanted. Without clearing it... He changed our car rental company, the advertising company, and he tried to bring in his own ticketing agency for our shows. When these things were brought to my attention, I would either stop them or rescind them, but he was hard to stay ahead of. While I was unraveling one thing that he did, he'd be in the kitchen telling the chefs how to cook. I was still living in San Diego and commuting, so whenever I got into Vegas, I would hear about all the stories of what he did while I was away. It got to where I would have almost daily confrontations with him, He never cursed, and he never raised his voice, but you'd rather get hit in the mouth than have an argument with him. He could wither you in an argument. I learned that he had even instructed my secretary to tell him on a daily basis what my movements were, where I was going, and what I was going to do. I personally think he is the devil, but he was very smart. In fact, um, there is a pretty scary and cinematic episode from this period that's too good not to include here. Lefty turning Glick's own secretary into his spy uh, seems to have been the last straw. So Glick arranged to meet him for coffee in the Stardust restaurant to, you know, straighten everything out. And when Lefty found out Glick's secretary had snitched on him, he said he was going to fire her. So, you know, Glick was appalled. And he told Lefty, dude, stick to your job description and remember that you work for me. And at this point... Lefty got up and left the table, composed himself. Uh, Glick says that he could see Lefty taking deep breaths and then he came back and sat down. And this time, Lefty said, according to Glick, quote, It's about time that you become informed of what is going on here and where I'm coming from and where you should be. I was placed into this position not for your benefit, but for the benefit of others. I have been instructed not to tolerate any nonsense from you, nor do I have to listen to what you have to say because you are not my boss. If you interfere with any of the casino operations or try to undermine anything that I want to do here, I represent to you that you will never leave this corporation alive. This is from Dennis Griffin. Quote, The naive tycoon Glick Complain to Frank Balistrieri. Bad move. In March 1975, Glick was summoned to Kansas City to meet with Nick Civella. Civella was a top guy in the Kansas City Mafia, and one of the Midwest bosses with a major interest in the Vegas skim operation. There... The boss explained the facts of life to him. The two men met in a hotel room where Civella announced that Glick owed the Kansas City family $1.2 million for its assistance in getting the Teamsters loan approved to buy the Stardust. If Glick didn't know it before, he quickly became aware that the mobsters considered the pension fund to be their private bank. Glick later recalled what Civella told him. And this is what Civella said, quote, within a quote, Cling to every word I say If it would be my choice, you wouldn't leave this room alive You owe us $1.2 million I want that paid In addition, we own part of your corporation and You are not to interfere with it We will let Mr. Rosenthal continue with the casinos And you are not to interfere In fact At one point um, Civella drew Alerted Colt45 and held it On Glick while he you know, Delivered this uh, threat Now, Lefty always denied having any knowledge of the skimming operations going on at these casinos and Glick also denied that. But if so, it's very difficult to see why the outfit would insist on keeping Lefty in place, you know, as a secret manager if they were just looking for someone to keep the staff in line and make sure that the high rollers, you know, kept coming back. This is not to mention the fact that Lefty had made it clear to Glick that he was working at the Stardust, as he said, for the benefit of others, i.e. the Chicago boys. And on top of that, Lefty himself told the writer uh, Nick Pelleggi, quote, There is no casino, in this country at least, that is capable of defending itself against a skim. There are no safeties. You can't prevent a skim if a guy knows what he's doing. When you get into the organized skim, you're talking about something very, very sophisticated. The whole casino has to be corrupted. So the skim at the four casinos was initially focused on the slot machines. All the money was sent to the Stardust, um, where the scales in the count room had been rigged, so you know, a standard roll of quarters appeared lighter than it was. Um, Although the mob was skimming from every place they earned, they preferred to kind of compartmentalize things this way, so they grouped three or four casinos together, Then they'd select one to hold the money uh, from the others. So Dennis Gomez, who was an auditor for the gaming uh, control board, he started to look into this operation in earnest. And he and his team investigated the Argent Corporation's books and set up a system of um, informants at all the casinos that they owned. And there were massive discrepancies in the accounts and chronic underreporting of income and when they ran background checks on key staff members at the Stardust, the Hacienda, the Fremont, and the Marina, they discovered that almost everyone in the upper management structure was connected somehow to the Teamsters, the Outfit, and the Syndicate. And on top of this, Argent had hired a guy called Jay Vandermark to run the slot machine uh, operation. Vandermark was one of the most... (laughs) Notorious uh, slot cheats in Vegas history. Uh, his name had even been in the black book at one time. And Gomez discovered that Vandermark had removed every security control and safeguard that is meant to ensure the casino's profits are acu- accurately reported. You know, um, and he'd fired half the in-house auditors, whose job it was to double and triple check the books and that the count room scales were, you know, weighing the rolls of coins correctly. So Gomez led a raid on the Stardust that exposed what was up to that point the biggest slot skimming operation in the history of um, Las Vegas. So there's some thoughts on the broader context here, because the discovery of this aspect of the skim happened at a very uh, politically delicate moment, uh, certainly for the Chicago outfit. So all the heads of the five families, plus guys like Carlos Marcelo in New Orleans, Santo Traficante, Maya Lansky, a host of other bosses from around the States, they were all silent partners to one degree or another in these casino scams. And I've tried to avoid hitting you with too many names to avoid confusion or boredom, you know. But people like Maya Lansky were also embedded with, you know, bigger forces, shall we say, as we've discussed at length before. So even though Lansky's influence was on the wane throughout the 1970s, it's probably worth pointing out that he still carried enough weight in the mob to get his brother Jake put on as a courier for the skim job that was going on at the Stardust. Um, Jake was one of the people responsible for getting that money out of the casino in Vegas and back uh, to the families. So you might ask why. Why did the bosses persist with Lefty as their man on the inside, considering that he was, you know, already being investigated within a couple of months of taking over at the Stardust. Most likely, the money was he was bringing in and, you know, his efficient stewardship of the skim outweighed any negative publicity at this point. If we pull out from Las Vegas and we look at things on a national level, what was going on uh, in politics at that time, Remember that we're still in the aftermath of Dealey Plaza here and also the uh, the anti-Castro operations. The church committee hearings began in 1975 and the House Select Committee on Assassinations began in 1976. And both of these were meant to dive very deeply into not just what the CIA had been getting up to, but who it had been partnering with, you know. So the syndicate and the Chicago outfit, these ties between them and the agency were being scrutinized very closely. And a lot of damaging information might have been exposed by people rocking the boat too much. Um, Because this raid on the Stardust happened in 1976, you know, so it's right around that very crucial time when... Uh, The CIA's connections to the mob, you know, are being uh, assailed and exposed and investigated. Now, in the end, a lot of information did end up being made public anyway. The CIA did still use its influence to dilute the most shocking revelations. And, you know, in the interest of national security, it buried and suppressed a lot more stuff that we'll probably never find out about or if we do it's still be like another 20 or 30 years from now even so while the syndicate was taking steps to cover not just itself but also its the nature of its relationship with the CIA what it didn't realize is that the CIA had already taken steps to protect itself and fuck the syndicate you know i don't think it's any coincidence put it like this that It isn't until the late 70s and the early 80s, after these revelations that came out from these two hearings, whitewashed and and carefully massaged as they were, I don't think it's any coincidence that that's when we begin to see the FBI really uh, clamp down and move against the mob. They'd effectively been thrown overboard by the agency at that point. Then there's also... Uh, Resorts International, which was also a factor here. Now, we've discussed this company before, but in short, Resorts International was a leisure and entertainment corporation that also served as a CIA, Mossad, and organized crime money laundering front. Now, the agency and Mossad tapped it for off-the-books funds, and upper echelon guys like Maya Lansky and other syndicate bosses used it to, you know, clean Uh, dirty money and invest in entertainment ventures in the Bahamas and in the US. We'll remember that Richard Nixon had been guest of honor at the opening of their um, hotel and casino in the Bahamas. And at its peak, it devised a private intelligence uh, operation called Intertel that was made up of, you know, ex-CIA and ex-FBI guys. This is all by way of trying to illustrate this very delicate balance of connections and links in a chain, you know, because a lot of Resorts International's funding, not all of it, but a lot of it, came through uh, a corporation called Investors Overseas Services. Now, the IOS was basically a complex Ponzi scheme that sold mutual funds to American expats, and it was owned by a guy called Bernard Kornfeld, who took advice from, and did a lot of business with, a lawyer called Sidney Karshak. Now, we'll be discussing Karshak again from time to time. He was one of the outfit's top fixers. He was a liaison between the Midwest bosses, Hollywood, and Las Vegas, and as one of Jimmy Hoffa's lawyers, he was also another conduit between the outfit and the Teamsters, In fact, he helped direct a lot of money into land deals and offshore accounts for the outfit. And he drafted a lot of the paperwork around their Vegas operations. And he also connected the syndicate to some of the biggest companies in America. Uh, His clients included Hilton Hotels, Hyatt, MGM, MCA Universal, and Playboy. So at the end of the film, Casino, Ace Rothstein—that's uh, you know the character based on Lefty—he um, he laments that Las Vegas eventually transformed into something like uh, Disneyland. And in reality, though, this this metamorphosis was very much part of the syndicate's plans. Uh, Lefty had been brought in, at least in part, to oversee Vegas's transition into a more family-friendly destination. Now, the popular narrative has it that the big corporations cleaned up the city in the 1980s and, you know, drove the mob out. But as we're going to see, the reality was a little bit different. See, guys like Mo Dalitz had been ahead of the curve when it came to the future of the city. Uh, Dalitz had started off as a bootlegger during Prohibition, and he ran a number of Uh, highly illegal but protected and sanctioned gambling houses uh, throughout the Midwest. He'd been an an early investor in Vegas back in the 40s and he'd partnered with the Cleveland Mafia to buy the Desert Inn. And um, for a while in the 50s, he'd also owned the Stardust as well. Uh, He sold the Desert Inn to Howard Hughes in 67, in fact. Now, with the money that he made from running his casinos... Um, Dalitz was able to invest in real estate and construction. And one of his f- preferred places to clean all his money was Castle Bank and Trust, which was founded by a spook called Paul Heliwell to help the agency finance God knows how many different black ops. Now, we'll be talking more about Heliwell and Castle Bank um, a little bit later in this series. Mo's construction firm. Uh, paradise development that built the las vegas country club the sunrise hospital the boulevard mall and the las vegas convention center and with every new venture he added more contacts to the syndicate's rolodex and contributed to developing the city into this family resort destination you know dalitz's ownership of the stardust that's a very good example of how the syndicate traded a lot of these places just amongst themselves, basically. You know, it helps to remember that they were all ultimately owned by the same company, so to speak. And this is how Lefty wound up running the Stardust in 1971, despite the Argent Corporation not formally buying a controlling stake in it until 1974. And it's how Howard Hughes bought the desert in, thinking that he was taking on the, the mob, but he still had to allow the day-to-day operations to be managed by syndicate-connected guys. And Robert Mayhew was there as a you know a liaison. And in fact, when you boil it right down, Argent's purchase of Recreon was really just the syndicate paying itself 67 million dollars from the Teamsters Pension Fund, you know, essentially. So all of this is by way of saying that lefty was one of a number of middlemen and fixers for a staggeringly vast and complex network of business relationships. Some of them were legal, some of them were illegal. Many of them were highly secretive and they were all very delicately balanced. However, for all that some of the bosses in Chicago liked Lefty, by 75, 76, he was starting to become a liability for them. He couldn't serve that function, you know, as the middleman and fixer for this complex, delicate network. Uh, For one, his marriage was falling apart. You know, he and Jerry, they would have actual punch-ups in public. You know, they pulled guns on each other on more than one occasion. She was out of her mind on booze and pills most of the time. He was off cheating on her with showgirls and waitresses and her friends. And then in 1976, the Gaming Commission concluded that Lefty was still influencing the casino operations despite not holding a gaming license. And he was unlikely to get a gaming license because of his arrest record and his known associates. And coming so soon after the exposure of the slot skim, the commission gave Lefty 48 hours to pack up his office and move out of the Stardust. The commission also told Argent that their gaming license would be revoked if Lefty wasn't barred from all four casinos. So in response, Lefty brought a federal lawsuit against the commission, and he argued that it was basically infringing on his constitutional rights, and he took the Las Vegas control board to the district court, and these various lawsuits that he launched, they moved from local courts to federal courts to appeals courts... And eventually he took them all the way to the supreme court and the entire time he's still secretly running these casinos and holding staff meetings at his mansion behind glick's back and incidentally uh, lefty's lawyer oscar goodman he would go on to become uh, the mayor of las vegas so let's have a little bit more on the internal politics of the outfit around this time um the outfit has always had a relatively stable line of succession at the top, you know, and this owes this to its unique structure. So while Giancana had been the boss, he still had to defer to a kind of two man committee, uh, shadow executives. And these were Tony Ocado and Paul Rica. Now, all but in them were a couple of advisors, and these were lawyers and fixers like Sidney Koshak or Hyman Lana. And they offered advice and counsel. Hyman Lana, incidentally um, worked with the CIA very closely to help smuggle uh, guns and dope into Israel and Iran all through this period of time. These shadow executives, for lack of a better term, they'd eased Giancarna aside and they tried a couple of replacements for him before they settled on Joe Ayapa. Now Ayapa was the ideal combination of smart And ruthless, and he was capable of taking orders while acting, you know, under his own initiative. And it was probably thanks to him that Lefty wasn't replaced sooner in the Argent structure. Now, because of the sheer scale of the Vegas expansion and the ungodly amount of money that they were skimming and laundering through this dizzying array of front companies and offshore banks and tax shelters, all of which were used. Also, to one degree or another, by, you know, other entities like the CIA, famous celebrities, major corporations, the outfit needed things to be nice and calm. And Lefty soap opera marriage and, you know, car crash handling of the Gaming Commission. That was not nice and calm. Sam Giancana had been deported back to the States in 1974. He'd been summoned to appear before the church committee and this, you know, sent... I'm sure, a very nervous ripple through this mob CIA underworld nexus. And when he was subsequently shot dead, just before he spoke to the committee in a house that was supposed to be under round-the-clock armed police protection, understandably, you know, raised a few eyebrows. So the church committee hearings were a direct threat to the outfit's business interests, you know. And to this end, Giancarna wasn't the only loose end that the outfit tied up. In the mid 70s they also hit charles nicoteri and johnny roselli and they were two other gangsters with potentially explosive knowledge about dallas and a string of second and third tier intermediaries who might have brought too much attention to what the outfit was up to in vegas they were also um clipped one of these intermediaries was a vegas pit boss called eddie buccieri now eddie was i believe second or third cousin to Fiore Buccieri, who was a Chicago boss and a friend of lefties, Eddie had demanded a $50,000 finders fee uh, from Alan Glick due to him helping Glick secure his gaming license and another loan from the Teamsters Pension Fund for you know minor refurbishments. Uh, he threatened to go to the papers and expose Glick's mob connections if he didn't pay up. Shortly after his last meeting with Glick, uh, Eddie was shot six times in the head at point-blank range while he was sitting in his car. Glick denied having any knowledge of who was behind the murder. Another was a woman called Tamara Rand. Uh, despite the fact that Glick had ready access, you know, to the Teamsters pension fund um, through the outfit, he'd still decided to lend half a million dollars from Rand to buy a 5% share of Recreon Corporation. Now, it's possible that he thought, I don't know, this might give him some degree of autonomy within the broader setup or something like that. But, yeah, Rand wasn't having any of it. She knew how much money all four casinos were making. And she also knew about the skim operation and just how deeply involved Glick was with the syndicate. So she started to demand a cut, and she threatened to take him to court. But before proceedings could begin, um, in, I believe, late 1975, she was found dead in her house in San Diego. Uh, She'd been shot five times in the head with a twenty two caliber pistol. So in context of his ongoing feud with Lefty, I, I imagine you can read these hits as a sort of a dual message to Glick. Like, one... You only exist in Las Vegas at our discretion. And two, we can get to anyone, anywhere, at any time. Now, the guy most likely behind the Rand hit and the most frequently cited suspect in the death of Sam Giancana was this short, ferocious outfit hitman and shakedown artist called Tony Spolatro. And we'll be continuing this story with... Tony's arrival in Vegas In part 2 Of our casino series But until then And as ever Leave us a rating and review on iTunes If you haven't already Urge on friends and loved ones alike Subscribe on the Patreon And share some love And get access to the paywalled Ghost Stories episodes As well as our new sister show Books of War The History of the Sicilian Mafia And get